Thanks for checking out this sermon from Christ the King in Carrollton, Georgia, where our goal is to glorify God by making, training, and sending disciples to engage our neighbors and the nations with the gospel of Jesus. If you want to learn more about us, you can find us online at ctkcarrollton.com, or better yet, join us on a Sunday in Carrollton. And we're really tracing out what do we learn about um, about the gospel through all of this, okay? Because, and I think we see it in a really interesting way this morning because I think that there is some tendency at times to really limit um, that which we think about when we hear the gospel, right? When we hear the gospel and this good news, there is this a lot of times limiting of our understanding of all that this really means and all that this encompasses about uh, who God is and what he is accomplishing in the world. And so um, we're, yeah, in John chapter four, and we're continuing this journey and we're seeing it just We're seeing it expand. We're seeing it get bigger. And so for those who were with us last week or maybe caught up online, um, let me go back for just a minute before we jump right into John chapter 4. In John chapter 2, which we actually see John mentioning uh, as we come into our passage this morning from chapter 4, we see Jesus turning uh, the water at a wedding into wine. It's this really beautiful miracle, really incredible miracle uh, from Jesus, the first of his miracles. Um, And in it, we see, again, this emphasis on what it means for the kingdom of God to be brought about through the coming of this king. Who's our king? Jesus is our king, right? When we talk of our king, let's go ahead and let's identify some terminology that we, that we like to use. When we talk about our king and, and Jesus, right, these are, are being used kind of synonymously. We're understanding Jesus as our king. Our king has come. Um, his his uh, bringing about of the kingdom is announced as he begins his earthly ministry. He is calling individuals unto repentance. Turn from your sin. Trust in me. The kingdom is here. Everything that you have been waiting on everything that you have been anticipating is being brought about only to this like infinitely greater degree than you would have imagined as you thought of the coming of the kingdom. Jesus is announcing the coming of the kingdom and now he's showing what this looks like, not only in this season, but in the season that is to come, right? Water into wine, the abundant uh, act of, of transformation and recreation by Jesus in John chapter two, elemental transformation transformation that paints this picture for us of the type of heart transformation that Jesus is bringing about by the power of the spirit in sinners who are in need of being made new, right? This is what Jesus is doing. He's making all things new. And we get the picture in John chapter two of how he brings this about. It continues as we transition into John chapter four. So I want us to jump right into John chapter four, and we're actually going to use the first few verses to serve as our introduction to our time this morning, which is a little bit different than than normal. Usually we we say some things about what we're going to say, and then we say them, and then we close it out, and we sing some more, right? Um, This morning, we're going to do it a little bit different. We're going to jump right into John 4 and allow allow this text to really serve as our introduction. So I hope you're there with me. I hope you're there in John 4, verse 46. Let's get right to it. What does John write? He writes this beginning in verse 6. He says, so he came again to Cana in Galilee where he had made the water wine. And so there's this, there's this reflection back here in the beginning to this 
first miracle of Jesus recorded for us in chapter 2. But in between John 2 and John 4, Jesus does these really amazing things to display his divinity. Now, what do, we, what do we mean when we say Jesus displaying his divinity? What are we talking about? Well, we're talking about this. We're talking about Jesus displaying and, and speaking toward and of his identity as God. And he does so on a number of occasions. We see Jesus's first cleansing of the temple at the end of John chapter two. I say the first because he's going to do it again towards the tail end of his ministry as he prepares to um, to go to the cross. But we see the first cleansing of the temple recorded in John chapter two, an event in which he speaks explicitly toward his crucifixion and resurrection. Jesus is confronted about his authority to wreck the court of the Gentiles, turning over tables and driving out vendors. And in response, Jesus says this in verse 19 of John chapter 2. He says, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Now he's in the temple, he's, he's cleansed the temple, he's already turned the water into wine. We talked a little bit about last week uh, concerning what this means of purification and this transition between old covenant and new covenant, that being the law and the blood of Jesus and what it accomplishes. But now he speaks, he speaks specifically toward, again, this authority and his work and bringing about the resurrection of his own body following his crucifixion. Broken and and brought back to life so that God might what? So that God might dwell with his people by way of his presence in his people. And so there's this connection with what we see here in verse 19 of John chapter 2 with the redemptive narrative, the story that's being told from Genesis to Revelation. Throughout the entirety of this of this book, we see in the beginning God dwelling with his people and then sin separating. The question that, that we begin unpacking and continue unpacking as we work our way through is how is this presence to be restored? How is God going to again be with his people? We need God to be with us. The question that we ask as we read through all of this is how is this to be accomplished? In John chapter 3, Jesus engages in this conversation around birth. And he distinguishes there between the physical and the spiritual with a respected Jewish teacher named Nicodemus. Some of you may be somewhat familiar with this story. Let's let's look at it for just a moment. Nicodemus states in verse 2 of John chapter 3, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. The conversation continues before in verse 14 and yet another reference to his crucifixion, Jesus connects kingdom sight and citizenship with belief. Only this time he goes one step further from what we see in John chapter two. He answers the question, what does the death of Jesus accomplish? And how does this benefit sinners? Have you ever asked yourself that question? Have you ever been asked that question? 
What does the death of Jesus accomplish? And how does that benefit me? How does that benefit sinners? Going one step further in Nicodemus's identification of Jesus in verse 2 as a teacher from God, accompanied by God, he states in verse 14, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Listen to what Jesus is doing here. Okay, Jesus here is identifying himself as God. Now, this is different from what Nicodemus has to say. Right? Nicodemus identifies Jesus as a teacher right, who has come from God. For no one can do these signs unless God is with him. And so there is this connection between Jesus being a teacher from the Lord and, and Jesus being accompanied by the Lord. But Jesus goes a step further. Right? He says, I'm not simply a, a teacher, but I am the author of wisdom and knowledge sent to save those who believe in me. Now, all of this serves to lead us towards this scandalous interaction with a Samaritan woman who has been socially and societally outcast in John chapter 4, verse 22. Now, we're, we're kind of connecting some dots here. We're connecting some dots between what we saw in John chapter 2 and what we see in John chapter 4 because, again, there is this progression that's taking place. In verse 22 of John chapter 4, Jesus says this to the woman at the well. He says, you worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews, but the hour is coming and now here when the true worshipers will worship the father in spirit and truth for the father is seeking such people to worship him. And then he says this, he says, God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth to which the woman responds. I know that Messiah is coming. He who is called Christ. And when he comes, he will teach us all things to which Jesus responds, I who speak to you am he. It's no surprise when we come to John chapter 20 and read from John his explanation of the inclusion of these signs so that you would come to the type of belief in Jesus that brings with it new hearts, new perspective, and a new position before God, no longer separated, but united through the sacrifice of Christ. In John chapter 4, Jesus is going to make a distinction. Jesus is going to make a distinction between belief that saves, belief that results in eternal life, and the type of belief in Jesus that doesn't. As we see this emphasis on desperation and death colliding with faith and an exercising of Jesus' divine power, Get this, by way of his word. I love John chapter 4. 
(laughs) And I love the emphasis on the power of the word of the Lord in John chapter four. Let me give us a main idea that we're gonna work towards understanding as we kind of weave our way through these verses this morning. Um, And it's on the screen for you, for those of you who are note takers, which we always encourage. Here it is. God purposes to draw the dead and dying to himself. Healing by the power of his word. This is a loaded idea. This is a loaded statement. God purposes to draw the dead and dying to himself. We're going to talk about about purpose amidst our despair. We're going to talk about, about purpose amidst our understanding of hopelessness. Jesus drawing dead and dying people to himself, healing by the power of his word. This is where we're going. Does everyone have this? Are we okay so far? Very good. Let's continue. Point one, God's purposes in desperation. God's purposes in desperation. In verses 46 through 49, we see a father who is at the end of himself. An official, likely a Gentile employed by the Roman government, urgently seeking after Jesus, who is at this point growing in interest who is growing in notoriety, stemming from these amazing signs that he is performing and the authority that he shows. In verse 47, this father's intentions are made clear. Look there with me. What does he want? What is this all about? Well, we don't have to guess. It's recorded right here for us. Verse 47. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. This is an obviously difficult scene. And one that exposes the effects of sin in creation. Now, let's, let's kind of identify, okay, some, some things that I think we're all able to, to understand and relate with. Some in this room have personal experience that shape the way that you hear and relate with this story. We see a, a desperate circumstance. We see this desperate situation, and we begin asking questions like, why is this type of sorrow a thing? Or why are our sickness and death a thing? Why are these things? Why are these things realities in our world? Why do we feel them? Why do we experience them? Why do we struggle through them? Is there purpose? What are we to surmise? What are we to know? How ought we feel? Science does a great job of walking us through the how. That being the process behind these issues. Or you can go to a doctor with illness and they can, they can look you over and they can say, okay, um, number one, like your diet is off the chain, okay? And thus, like these issues that you are dealing with physically, right, can be connected back to in some way, right? Your leg hurts, right? Well, 
you got hit by a car, right? Of course your leg hurts, right? Like both science and common sense kind of combine there to provide this, this summarization of why we are in the condition that we are in. But if we are honest, it's not the how of the issue, right? It's not the, the how of the failed heart or the brain hemorrhage or the fever and their after effects that we wrestle with, is it? It's not so much the how, but it's more what. It's more the why. Right? It's not how is this a thing. We are able to, right, with, a, with some degree of certainty, come to a, a place of rest and understanding there. But the why is a much bigger struggle. What we find in God's word is the ability to deal with this issue. There are, of course, connections with the rebellion of our first parents in the garden as we think about the why behind sorrow, the why behind sickness, the why behind illness. They exist because of humanity's rejection of God's word. At times, sickness is a result of specific sinful behavior, participation in activities that God warns against, such as we see in Genesis chapter 3. What does God say in the garden? He says, listen, I've given you all of this to enjoy, right? to, to, to feast upon, to look upon, to bring pleasure. Except for this one tree, right, in which if you eat of it, you will surely die. There is this fall that occurs as a result of humanity's rebellion. God is explicit there, isn't he? Like this is what will happen if you go against my word. And the consequences are clear. In our lives, we can, we can trace back, we can diagnose certain issues that we wrestle with, that we feel with this rebellion from God's word. In the same way that we observe there in Genesis chapter 3, there is at the same time a more general explanation of sickness and death. Right? It's a part of our lives being lived out in a fallen world. Apart from the fallout from humanity's collective rebellion against God, there are not these issues that we so oftentimes rub up against in the world. And so let's understand this on two planes. Plane number one, the why, right? We are sinners and we act sinfully. We make decisions that that go against the instruction from God in his word for how we ought to live. And the consequences are clear. We hurt one another. We say hurtful things to one another. We don't love one another well as the Lord instructs us to. And as a result, we feel things like broken relationships, don't we? There are struggles that result from this explicit rebellion from the word of the Lord. At the same time, there are sicknesses and there are struggles that just come along with living in a fallen world. We get a great example, a great illustration of this as Jesus interacts with his disciples walking along. They see um, a, a person on the side of the road who is, who is sick, who is ill, who is broken. And they say things like, what did they do to be like this? So as Jesus responds, we're living in a broken world, right? Essentially, I'm, I'm summarizing here. 
We live in a broken world. What you are observing isn't necessarily always connected back to a decision that has been made, at least not your decision. Perhaps it goes back to the original decision, that being rebellion that has so infected and infested our hearts and our world. This is what we are seeing in John chapter 4. A son who is sick because this is what it looks like to live in a fallen world. This is what it looks like to live in a broken world. And as a father, this type of story terrifies me (laughs) for every reason that you can imagine. I certainly read this story differently than I did five years ago. I'm able to connect with it differently now, right? Because um, I am a, a father with two children and I imagine, right, that hopeless, helpless feeling of of their illness, illness to the point that like death is a very real possibility. What we will come to realize as this story continues. Yet through the behavior of this official and his response, born out of desperation and hope, we find the answers to the question that we are really wrestling with. You see, when we lean in, what we find is this. Not only does God deal with the why behind the how of sickness, behind the the why of death that produces such devastation in our lives so often, but he speaks towards their purpose. And so we've we've answered the question of why, haven't we? We live in a fallen world. We we oftentimes break God's rule and the consequence is insert said consequence. But now we're moving forward a little bit and we're, we're understanding their purpose, not simply the why, but the purpose behind the why, not only for the official, but for those looking on, including you and I. Look with me at verse 48. Desperation, despair, a son at the point of death. How would Jesus respond? So Jesus said to him, unless you see signs, and wonders you will not believe. To which the official says to him in verse 49, Sir, come down before my child dies. This is the point. Okay, this is a this is a teaching moment from Jesus for those who are looking on, a moment that Jesus leverages to speak toward the distinction in belief that results in life and that which doesn't. Look with me at verse 48. So Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Context helps us a ton here. And inserting ourselves into this scene assists in shaping our understanding of what Jesus is doing. See, we can read it like this. Imagine that I'm having a conversation with, with Dylan, all right? And I say, you, unless you see, unless you believe, continue on. It appears as though in this moment that I am making Dylan the primary object of this teaching lesson. Only as we consider what's going on in the story, I think what we actually find is that there's more of a a plural challenge. 
That this is a challenge that's being presented not only to the official and maybe even perhaps not primarily to the official, although he is certainly the subject of a test from Jesus, which we're going to talk more about in just a few moments. But instead, we see this as a presentation to all of the people around Jesus in the scene. It's almost as though Dylan and I are engaging in conversation. Let me paint the picture for you, okay? Dylan and I are engaged in conversation, and Dylan is requesting something of me, and I say, you, you will not, like, believe unless you see these signs and these wonders. What's the difference in, and you will not, and, and you will not? Well, it's our, our understanding of what Jesus is really doing here, isn't it? Right, That there is this bringing in of those around into the story that Jesus is telling you that Jesus is speaking of here in verse 48. Unless you see signs and wonders you will not believe is not directed solely at the official with the sick son. But it's directed to all of those who are gathered around. There is a warning that is here. For those who are present and for those that are listening in this morning, there's a warning from Jesus here in John chapter 4. And the warning is this. When we hear warning, I think we all lean in, don't we? A little bit, right? Like, hey guys, let me tell you, Monday is going to be a bear, right? Here is a warning. Everybody's going, well, today's Sunday, tomorrow's Monday. I'm really interested in this at this point. There's a warning in John chapter 4, and the warning in John 4 from Jesus to those listening in and to you and I this morning is this, to not fall into the popular position of becoming so fixated on these signs that we miss their purpose. What's the purpose? Well, the purpose is very clearly Jesus. He is the purpose. Don't don't miss, don't become so fixated on these signs that you miss out on me, Jesus says. That you miss out on on my beauty. That you miss out on my glory, that you miss out on my identity as the son of God who saves the world. Why? Well, because this is a defining characteristic between the type of belief in Jesus that saves and the type of belief in Jesus that doesn't. This is in no way an indictment on the signs that Jesus is performing but instead an encouragement to understand their purpose and painting this picture of, as we established last week, as we established in our time, as we began, John chapter four, kingdom life. Leading people to put their faith in Jesus, expressing the type of belief that saves. This is the why, the ultimate why that we wrestle with amid difficulty. Is anyone still interested? What's the why? Here it is. Right? God's desire that our desperation would drive us to him. without expressing any type of defensiveness, right? The the desperation of the official is seen most clearly through his response to the words of Jesus. We don't see from the official, hey, like, 
wait a minute. <laughs> okay, that was, a, that was a pretty sharp statement directed towards me and, and those around me. Don't you know who I am? Like, don't you know who I work for? We talked already of the popularity of Jesus, word getting out about Jesus around the region as to what he is doing and what he is saying, the type of authority that he speaks with. People are super interested. And at no point in the official's response do we see, wait a second, like I heard that you were like this really cool dude that like walked around the region, high-fiving and healing and teaching in tweetables. Like that's who I thought you were. We don't see that. Instead, we see pleading. We see this identifying characteristic of of true desperation. What does true desperation look like? What does true despair look like? A couple of weeks ago, um, and this is, this is going to fail to fully paint this picture for us, but I, I want to bring us into this story a little bit and my life. Here I am. A couple of weeks ago, actually more than a couple of weeks ago, Courtney and I were on our way back from Panama City, and I got pulled over for speeding. Okay, yes, lawbreaker. I felt the, the full weight of justice upon me. Um, and so I get pulled over and I was going fast, okay? Like Will's not here this morning. He already knows the story. Um, I was going really fast and um, the guy pulls me over and I was just like, I'm sorry. Like there was, there was, I had, there was no excuse that I could offer this guy. Like, and I really was just ready to get home. You know how it goes after vacation, you get pulled over. And we were like 35 minutes from the house at this point. I was like a horse headed to barn, right? Just ready to be there, ready to land. And um, so, yes, sir, you know, give me the ticket. Like everything was super cordial. He was a really nice guy. Like everything went really well on the side of the road. Like ticket was exchanged, courtesies exchanged. And then I was on my way. Okay. Um, and, uh, so anyway, um, I afterwards realized that because of this ticket, um, like I, my, my insurance, this is going to be one of those things that continues to hit us. Okay. This is not like a one-time thing. Like, okay, man, that, that stinks. But like, here we go on into September and October, right? Christmas season's upon us, right? Just leave that behind. Right. Uh, but it was something that was going to continue to affect because of the speed in which I was traveling and the points that it would have on my license. For those of you who are lawbreakers with me, you kind of know the rhythm I'm talking about here. Okay. Um, and and so uh, it was brought to my attention that you should, you should call and you should ask them if they can lower it. So this would not be, again, something that you would continue to pay for. And so I did. And um, come to find out, has anyone ever done this before? Raise your hand. You ever talk to a solicitor about like, hey, like, don't hurt me so bad, right? Is kind of the, the message, like, just take it easy a little bit. Uh, so I, I called. And the way that this happens now is they will, if the ticket has already left, you guys are getting like a legal lesson this morning too. Like, isn't this so helpful and practical? Um, The ticket had already left the police station and was now at the court, like where they were waiting on me, like gavel and everything, okay? And so um, because that had taken place, I needed to talk to the officer in charge. That's a thing. They can say, like, leave your, like, contact information. We'll have the officer call you, and if he wants to, you know, drop it, he can. And so he did. He called me. And again, 
in a similar scene as us on the side of the road, there was this realization that like I can bring nothing to this except my need. Like I am solely relying on your grace. I'm solely relying on your compassion. I am in this moment, um, in this position of desperation. I can do nothing, right? I offer nothing. There's no excuse to be made. I'm not going to talk to this guy on the phone and go, well, actually, like, I think your radar gun was broken. Like, that was not the way this conversation went. It was more, dude, you can say whatever you want to to me, okay? Like, just wear me out if you would like to. But, like, I've got to deal with this issue, Right, This issue must be dealt with. Whatever you have to say, I don't care. Like I am primarily focused on this, this end result. Man, as this, as this father, as this official comes to Jesus, we get every indication that they did say what you want with to me. There is no defensiveness. There is no uh, encouraged, you know, changing of the narrative. It is just, hey, I am pleading. I am broken. I am desperate. I need you to act. I need you to do something. To which Jesus responds, verse 49, sir, sir, come down before my child dies from the official. To which Jesus responds, verse 50, Go and your son will live. Now we're going to go into more details here in just a moment, but I want us to again say a few things about some really amazing things that Jesus is doing here. Uh, Two things specifically. Number one, what is Jesus doing here? Um, He is yet again establishing this crystal clear understanding that he is the one to whom the desperate run. Jesus is the one to whom the desperate run purpose amid our desperation. What is the purpose? What is the intent? We live in a fallen world. We are feeling its effects, but God desires, Jesus desires that amid our desperation, seasons of helplessness and hopelessness, that we would respond by running to him. This is clear based on what we read here in John chapter four. That's number one. Not only that, But again, Jesus is constructing for us this vision of kingdom life. The totality of the gospel. He is contrasting a world where shame, John chapter 2, sickness, and the looming shadow of death is a thing and a world where it is not. This is the connection to what we saw last week. There is this anticipation that's being created of this kingdom that Jesus is establishing as opposed to perhaps the kingdom that the people think they want. Again, all of this is the gospel. All of this is the gospel. Jesus's announcement of the coming of this better kingdom, a better king that functions around a new and better set of standards. Jesus comes on the scene and he, and he pronounces, he announces, man, repent for the kingdom is at hand. The king has arrived and there is this transformation that is to be brought about. It's being brought about and it is to be brought about. Jesus is accomplishing all of this here 
in John chapter 4. And so let's ask the question. Let's revisit, right? Um, Understanding the why of our desperation. Where are the hopeless and helpless and desperate to run? Are you in that place this morning? Are you wrestling with this? Are you feeling this? Where do we go? Where do you go? The answer is simple. Jesus. God is teaching us that here. Run to Jesus. That's point one. Let's look at point two. The power of God's word, observable in verses 50 through 53, coupled with the compassion of Jesus, which is just all over this passage. Look with me at verse 50. Jesus said to him, go, your son will live. Now we're going to revisit that statement at the very end, because again, what a loaded statement from Jesus. What does it mean to live? I think our understanding of what that means and what Jesus does here in John chapter four is about to undergo um, some renovation. So hold on to that uh, as we, as we work through this, this point. I want to share with you a a quote from a commentator I read this last week um, around this idea of the power of God's word coupled with the compassion of Jesus. Because the compassion of the Lord observable here through Jesus is nothing new. But in fact, we can trace it all the way back to the beginning. Let's pull this quote up. It's somewhat lengthy. And so we're going to have it on the screen um, so that you can uh, read along. Commentator said this. We see the divine design of compassion in places we might not quite expect, like Genesis 3. When Adam and Eve first sinned, God what? God clothes them with animal skins and provides for an immediate need. Our minds can jump through the immediate context to the way this scene foreshadows a greater atonement, but let's not leave Eden too early. Adam and Eve just destroyed the perfection of paradise. Consider the consequence of the rebellion of Adam and his bride in the garden. Its effects on the world and everyone who would occupy a place in it Yet God moves toward them in compassion. Our first ancestors audaciously disobeyed their creator. And yet he cares for their immediate needs. God slaughtered an animal from his pristine creation to clothe the very pair through whom sin brings death and destruction all the way through John chapter four and down into the present. God moves toward his enemies in costly compassion. Now for those who were looking on at what we see here in John chapter four, there would have been this question surrounding the extension of grace to this official. Why? Well, because he is an occupier, <laughs> Right? Like this is, this is a guy who um, nobody is super excited about seeing coming. And yet what does Jesus do? He leverages this scene. He leverages this moment to, to teach those who were, who were looking on and you and I some incredible things about the coming of the kingdom, what that looks like, and his compassion to those who are least deserving. The question that we have to wrestle with is this. Do we see ourselves as least deserving within the context of this passage? Do we see our own rebellion 
that we see our own, our own evil, our own wickedness, our own sin, our own rejection. We see here this surprising act of compassion from Jesus. Go and your son will live. The question that we have to wrestle with is do we see ourselves desperate and in need of this same type of life-giving compassion? How does the man respond? Man, he believes. He believes the word that Jesus spoke to him and he went on his way. In John chapter two, Mary, the mother of Jesus at a wedding, when made aware of the problem of the quickly diminishing wine stores, instructs those catering the party to do whatever Jesus tells them. Confident, as we drew out last week, in his ability to confront this issue, right? To, to deal with this problem. As we transition here into John chapter four, as we connect back to what we saw last week in John chapter two, we see that not only does God deal with the, the why behind the how of sickness and death that produces such devastation in our lives, but he spoke toward their purpose and he encourages us and his ability to, by the power of his word, address said issue. The evidence is found in verse 51. Look there with me. As he was going down, so he leaves, word, hey, believe, believe, uh, the man believes the word that Jesus spoke to him, and he goes on his way, he travels down, and as he does, verse 51, he runs into his servants. They meet him, and they tell him that his son is recovering. Miraculously, your son is recovering. The desperation that we feel earlier on in the narrative has now been transformed into this celebratory tone. So the man asks them the hour when he began to get better. And they said to him yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. Verse 53, the father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. And he himself believed all uh, he and all of his household. Twice, we see this concept of belief mentioned. There's belief As Jesus says, go, your son will live. And there is this belief here in verse 53. It seems as though there is a progression. Of course, this miracle confirms the faith that is already present in the official. The official truly believed in the power of Jesus to heal by his word. And now... We're seeing evidence. We're seeing confirmation of the power of the word of Jesus. Faith in Jesus and the power of his word to give life. Only we find that the life that Jesus gives is greater than he or we could have expected. This is something like this. Have you ever been to the Grand Canyon before? Raise your hand. Anyone ever been to the Grand Canyon? Only a few of us. I've never been to the Grand Canyon, but I believe that it's there because I've seen pictures of it. Also, I believe that it's really beautiful and it's really big, okay? Now, for those of you who have been, you believed the Grand Canyon to be there 
before you saw it, unless you were just like super skeptical of everything and you're like, I am researching this for myself, <laughs> right? Like, I don't know that I'm totally bought in on the Grand Canyon existence, so I'm going to go check it out. Wow, it is really here, right? I believe that it's there, um, but if I were to go and to see it, man, doesn't that belief look different at that point? Like, I believe that it's there. But when I, when I go, right, say I, I just got in the car, right, and I just drove through the night and the next day and the next night, however long it takes to get to the Grand Canyon, okay? And I get there, and it's dark, right? Uh, but the sun is coming up. I'm just, I'm right there. Sun's coming up, and, and I can't really see anything yet, but I, I park the car, and I, I, like, run out, right? That's me running. That's the sound of that. And I, I stop, right, like right there at the edge. And I'm like, I'm just waiting. And I'm like, I look, I'm looking out and I can, there's something here, but what does it look like? And as the sun comes up, like my, my belief is, is given like real, like impactful expression, isn't it? Right, like now I believe differently. It wasn't as though I didn't believe before, but now like I'm, I'm seeing it. Like, holy cow, like, it's, it's really, it's really here. I knew it was here, but I didn't know what it looked like. I didn't know the, the, the impact that it would have. I didn't know how I would feel. The feeling is a little bit different, right? I'm believing, but now there's this feeling that accompanies it. Man, I can't help but escape this sense of that is what we are observing here in John chapter 4. There's a clear belief, there is faith that the official possesses, that the power of the word of Jesus is capable of of extending life. And he's walking home. And we even know that it's like a day later, like the next day. Like, I mean, there's a lot of thinking that this official is able to do over his trek. And he runs into his servants and they tell him that his son is, is, is well. A son who was on the, on the brink of death is now well. And he asks them, just for fun, <laughs> when? And it turns out that the fever breaks, right? The sickness breaks, like right when Jesus promised that his son would live. The man goes home and of course, everyone is like asking the question, how did this happen? <laughs> we would imagine that he, he shares with them, like, you won't believe it, Jesus. Like I saw him and I, like, I talked to him and I told him, I pleaded with him. And he said you would live. And like right when he said you would live, like you guys were here, you saw it, the fever broke and now you're alive. We thought you were gonna die. And what effect does this have on this man's home? I mean, there's just, there's life like springing up everywhere. And we begin to ask the question, at least I was asking the question, right? Jesus says your son will live. Well, what type of life are we talking about here? Like, yes, his physical life is extended, but man, it's so much bigger than that. There's life, like there's spiritual life. The differentiation between the type of of belief in Jesus that saves and the type of belief that doesn't is provided a face here. 
what it really looks like. Was this promise from Jesus for life in John chapter 4, verse 50, his healing? Yes. Was his healing from the fever the promise that Jesus was speaking of? Yes. Was it more than that? Yes. It's just yes all over. It's so much bigger than we could have even begun to imagine as we begin this journey. Kristen Weatherall who is a contributor to the Gospel Coalition, wrote this. She says, the works of God may include physical healing now, but they assuredly include healing from sin and eventually healing from a broken body forever. And then she asks this question, does Jesus want to heal you? Because here we see healing happen. She writes, in this lifetime, it is possible that he does. In this life, we are free to come to him with with fearful expectancy, believing he can. But knowing that he ultimately will. As a result, we peacefully trust in him. No matter the outcome. The son lives and Jesus possesses this power to bring about his healing through his word. The the same word that creates in the beginning, the same word that that is wrapped in flesh and becomes incarnate in the person of Jesus is the same word that from some distance brings about healing in the life of the official's son. But let's go this next step, right? And let's say this, that this word, that this this living word, the word of God is capable of producing life, not only in Genesis chapter one and two, not only here and the extension of life and new birth in Genesis chapter four, but here and now. There's an informing by way of John chapter four of what we believe about God's word. What do we believe about God's word? Here's what we believe. We believe that the word of God possesses a certain amount of power, an infinite amount of power to bring dead people to life to make sick people well. And in the same way that the official in his desperation pleads for this intervention, we follow suit. Right, as as sinners in need of being saved, as dead people in need of being brought to life, as sick people in need of being made well, we cry out in desperation to Jesus to heal us, confident, not only in his power to perform these signs, but in the beauty of his person, slain for rebellious lambs in order to bring us back to the fold, confident that he will accomplish his purpose, that he will turn our hearts of stone into hearts of flesh that love him 
and long for intimacy and fellowship with him. In the same way that we cry out asking Jesus to save us, we cry out and we petition the Lord to do a work in our community and in our homes and in our workplaces, in our spheres of influence to save to rescue. We communicate God's word confident in its ability to do the work as the spirit brings about illumination, scales from eyes falling away as the true state of our despair is understood. And the person of our refuge is understood, Jesus. We run to Jesus, confident in his compassion to give life. We believe in his beauty, the sufficiency of his life and death to cover us, and the power of his word to work. And this is convicting, and this is challenging, and this is rhythm-informing, because here it is. I want us to close with this idea. We talk about transformational intent from a passage often. Of course, there is this element that if you are here and you do not know Jesus, may you cry out to Christ, see your despair, see your brokenness, see your guilt, and in confidence in the person and work of Jesus, cry out that he would heal you, confess belief, confess faith, faith that saves, a gift of grace from the Lord. But for the church here, what we see is rhythm informing and that we have to ask ourselves the very serious question. I'm going to sit down because we're about to have a little, little family time, okay? Like we've got to ask ourselves this very serious question. And do we believe that the power of God possesses this innate uh, capability in and of itself as the spirit works to produce life? Do we believe that? Do we believe the word of, the, of God is capable of bringing about life? Do we believe that? If we do, then the rhythms of our lives are transformed. Do we understand what that means? Do you understand what that means when we talk about the rhythms of our lives being transformed? What we say is transformed. What do we say? What are we communicating? What are we speaking of? If God's word possesses the power to change the human heart, then we've got to ask the question and I've got to ask the question, do I believe that? Like, do I believe in the power of the gospel? We've got to do that work. Like we've got to ask ourselves that question. What evidence in our lives supports said belief? We speak each week of the promised kingdom of God that has come and is coming. And there is this level of reflection and and anticipation that our participation at these tables encourages. And so as we come, let us do so in celebration of Jesus, considering the ways in which we are to worship and live mission and express confidence as we go forward, as we leave this place. Let's pray, and as we do, let's express corporately and individually our gratitude to God for his word and the work of the Spirit to produce salvation for us as uh, the gospel is proclaimed.
Let's thank the Lord. This is a gift. And then we'll come to the table.